Hello, pod listeners. Greg Boyd here with the last appeal to our 2020 sustain campaign. And we're going to be close to our goal of 400 sustainers this year. Now, some would say that only God knows if we're really going to get there. Others would say that it's all ordained. In fact, that'd be kind of convenient. You know, if you just believe that everything was predestined, like, que sera, sera, yeah, well, how, but see, we don't believe that around here. We believe that, 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 that we have choices, that we've got free will, and, and so we're appealing to your free will, and uh, this is kind of an adventure. You know, how is this going to turn out? Well, we'll see. So today we're sitting at 341 sustainers, so we need 59 of you to go to whchurch.org sustain and sign up to financially support us over the next coming year. More than 59 can do that. We'd love to have 1,059, but we need 59 to meet our goal. So would you just consider that? Now, if you need a little bit of a, more of a nudge, um, uh, you should just know that in the coming year, we're going to be experimenting with a number of ways and to create opportunities for you to connect in more meaningful ways with uh, Woodland Hills Church. For example, the first thing we're going to be doing is Dan Kent will be offering an online class on C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it is really insightful. If you're a stainer, you'll be getting an email about that very soon. And of course, we'll let you know about other opportunities as they come along. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. Your partnership really matters to us. It helps support our ability to offer sermon resources to, for free to people like you all over the world. We want to play whatever role God wants us to play in this uh, rising Jesus-looking kingdom movement that's going on around the globe. And you guys are helping make that happen. We are absolutely grateful that you choose to tune in. And we couldn't do things that we do without your financial support, so thank you. There you can see the snazzy t-shirt that we have for all who sign up to be a regular giver. And we have instructions there about how to do that. So again, the address is whchurch.org sustain. Thanks so much to everyone who signed up this year. And thank you all for tuning in and, and following along with our sermons. Uh, I'll be back next week to let you know if we made our goal. God bless you guys. Take care. Good morning, Woodland Hills. How are you all doing this morning? All right, all right, all right. Uh, you know, the AWOL group is uh, going down to Mexico and they want prayer for covering whatever. And uh, I, I just want to tell you that if you guys, AWOL crew... If you're looking for a real cheap way to get to Mexico, they got some real deals on cruise lines these days. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm de- Lord, help all of you who are in that business. Uh, you're hurting right now for reasons that... Which, 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 by the way, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm, I'm teaching pastor here. It's really good to see all of you. If, if you're visiting for the first time or second time or whatever, uh, a special welcome to you. Glad you're here uh, and are part of this. Uh, this is one of those... Cool Sundays, where you're getting a two-for-one special. That's right, folks. Two, two sermons for the price of one. All right. Uh, yeah, I usually call this like my pre-sermon sermon, but the pre-sermon sermons are often better than the sermons and, and sometimes, sometimes longer. So this is sermon number one. I don't know. There's two things I want to say this morning. The first one has to do kind of with the cruise ship deal I was just talking about. I want to tell you about the early church. I believe, believe the, early, the early church is connected to the cruise ship. Um, Here's the thing, Rodney Stark, he was a, a historian, secular historian, not a Christian historian, but he, he wrote a book on the rise of Christianity in the early church. And as a historian, he's trying to explain how is it that this little group of Messianic Jews, a persecuted group, everyone hated them, how is it they went from being this little tiny group in the first century to being, well, by the turn of the fourth century, around 312 or so, they estimate that about 10% of the Roman Empire was Christian. 10%. And that happened while Christianity was being persecuted. It's surprising to this historian that Christianity didn't disappear altogether. But for it to thrive, to reach every corner of the Roman Empire within, within 300 years, and, and to constitute 10% of the population, that is 
He thought, astounding. What explains it? He wrote a very good book on this. I, I, it's not, I don't agree with everything about it. I think he shortchanges the role of miracles and exorcisms in the evangelism of the early church, but he's a secular historian, so you kind of expect that. But what he gets right, he gets really, really right. And what he really gets right is this. He says these Christians, what, what more than anything else, grew the faith, even though it was persecuted, I don't know, throughout the Roman Empire, it nevertheless caught on. But what did it was two things. These Christians were convinced that, number one, they were called to love like Jesus loves. And they just were, they just poured themselves out. They believed that they were called, and in fact, they considered it an honor to suffer the way Jesus suffered when the suffering is for love. And, and, and so that was a core conviction of theirs. Number two, they believed they lived forever. They thought that they didn't fear death. Uh, this is a long story, not a short story. They thought that the glory that God has in store for those who love him, uh, it can't be compared to the sufferings of this present world. And so this made the early Christians outrageously generous because of their love. They're just pouring themselves out towards others and remarkably brave because they didn't fear death. Well, this grew the church in a number of ways. One was that just by virtue of being outrageously generous, they were always blessing their neighbors and that wins people to Christ. Um, they also, the way that they died, they'd be brought to the Colosseum when they were under persecution. They'd be martyred in various terrible, terrible, terrible ways. But these Christians wouldn't rail at the crowd or the emperor or curse the people or whatever, or they wouldn't plead for their lives or be afraid. They just calmly blessed the crowds as they were fed to lions and set on fire. And the way that they died was so impressive that it, it won the allegiance of, of some of the onlookers. The church grew through their, the witness of their death. But most importantly, Rodney Stock argues, there's two episodes in the uh, first three centuries of the early church where uh, Rome underwent some ext uh, an extreme plague. And plagues in the ancient worlds didn't usually mean something like the flu influenza like we have today, where maybe one out of a thousand or even one out of a hundred die. Uh, typically, it would wipe out 30 to 40 percent of the population, sometimes more than that, depending on the circumstance. But it was devastating. Now, they didn't understand a lot about plagues in the ancient world, but they do know, know that it's contagious. And so whenever a plague would hit, everyone that was not symptomatic would run for the hills. I mean, just get out of town. And those who were sick were left behind, um, assumed to die. So what the Christians did was, while well, everyone was running out of town, including the physicians and including the pagan priests, no one wanted to be around when the plague hit, the Christians ran into the city to take care of the people that were left behind, to nurse them. It turns out that about 80% of the deaths that happen when any kind of epidemic, any kind of pandemic or plague hits, 80% of the deaths are preventable if you just have basic care. But if everyone leaves, including your doctors, you don't have basic care, so you die. So the Christians would come and, and welcome these people in their community and take care of them while they're sick. Sometimes they'd die, but sometimes they wouldn't. A lot of them would survive because of the care that the Christians gave. Now, some of the Christians died. But surprisingly, a lot of them didn't. In fact, fewer of them died than, than, than the rest of the population. And they don't understand germs in the ancient world, so they don't get this. What we now know is that these early Christians, unlike most people in the ancient world, they lived in really tight community with one another. And when you live in a tight community with others, it builds up your immune system. So they had a sort of built-in resistance to, 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 to the plague. To some degree, they had a better immune system. Plus, once they went into a city... Now, if they didn't die, they had a really strong immune system, so they'd go to the next city and became traveling physicians, and they never died, and people would look at it and say, the hand of God is on them. 
Uh, now, in a sense, the hand of God was on them because God was using their outrageous generosity, their love, and their bravery to win the hearts of people. Because if you were left for dead, your high priest left you, and your family left you, everyone else abandoned you, but these Christians who don't even know you come around and put their own selves at risk while they take care of you, well, that tends to win the hearts of people and allegiance of people. And it was that love that grew uh, the early church, despite the fact that it was under persecution. Now, why might I bring that up this morning? Well... It just so happens. We're not facing a plague that could wipe out 30% of the population. Uh, those who are you know, in charge of uh, the spread of disease and pandemics and stuff, they keep warning that sooner or later the big one is coming. They say that it's a matter of time before something hits that could take out 10 to 30% of the population. This one isn't that, but it could be bad. Now, some are saying it's, it could just be like a normal flu thing. And, you know, tens of thousands die every year from this, so that's nothing new. Some are kind of minimizing it. But uh, if you go to the CDC uh, or the World Health Organization, the, you know, if you want to know facts, never listen to someone who's got a vested interest in what the facts are. <laughs> like they want to make... You know, go to the specialist. And, and they're saying that uh, it could be 2 to 3% fatality rate, uh, which is a lot higher than the regular flu. And they're saying that up to 30 to... Anywhere from 30 to 70% of the world population could be affected by this. Do the math. Uh, it could be pretty bad. Now, I'm not worried about it, but it could be disastrous, all right? But I'm not worried about it because we're not supposed to be worried about disastrous stuff. Okay, so I, I don't know. This could be a wimpy thing. I hope it is. I hope it's real mild. But it could, we could take a big hit on this. You look at Italy right now and uh, Milan and those places, they, they still have soccer matches, but no one goes. And already the NBA is saying we've got to brace ourselves because we'll have games, but it could be that people aren't going to be showing up. This thing's having an impact. When they, start, when they shut down Disney World, you know that the end times is upon us. Uh, these people don't lose billions of dollars a day for nothing. Okay, so this could be big. So the question I want to ask is, how should we as kingdom people respond? How should we as kingdom people respond to this? And of course, you do the normal stuff that everyone does, like wash more frequently than usual, all right? Wash your hands, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Got to go 20 seconds. Get under the nails, all right? Make sure you get that. And sanitize, if you can find any sanitizing stuff lately. I, Shelly went out to, we, we thought, you got smart. Friday morning, we, we need to stock up. So we go to the store. Too late. Everything's gone. Man, it's like, I, I, I have photos of this. Toilet paper. Usually there's more toilet paper than you'd ever wish upon anybody, but now the things are empty. People are really concerned about toilet paper when disaster hits. Of course, we have to have a priorities here. Here's the thing. However, respond in those normal ways. We're encouraging people to do fist bumps or elbow bumps or hip bumps. You know, like, hey, how's it going? Boom. Uh, you know, just don't knock anyone over. The Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss, but we're putting a ban on that for the next uh, six weeks to six months. All right? No kissing in the auditorium. Not good. Just common sense stuff like that, but most importantly, however we respond, don't join the hysteria. Do not join the fear. Nothing good happens out of fear, and perfect love casts out our, all fear. And we're to be a people who are consumed with this perfect love of God for us and God moving through us. Don't join the hysteria. So the trouble here is this, that when, when, when people get fearful, we, we go into a bunker mindset, a, a, a self-preservationist mindset. Uh, me and my own. I've got to protect me and my own. And, and, and since there's a scarcity of resource, only so much toilet paper to go around, only so much sanitizer to go around, it's kind of a feeding frenzy. Everyone's got to get their own. So my concern for me and my own now becomes, well, insofar as it competes with your concern for you and your own, we're not on the same side. It, it creates a competitive kind of mindset, an us versus them kind of mindset. 
And people bunker down on this. And then when, see, right, right after this self-preservationist thing comes, it is a fallen feature of the world that gets intensified during times of, of trial, and that is xenophobia. Fear of the other. The other, minimally defined, is whoever's outside your orbit. Whoever's not on your radar screen, your, your loved ones and your family. But the other is xeno, is the word in Greek. Phobia, fear of xeno. Zeno is also then one who is other than you, strange, strange to you, uh, maybe even a perceived threat to you. Xenophobia is part of the intrinsic structure of this world. It's part of the fallen condition. But under times of distress, when, when, when resources get scarce and people are getting sick and people are dying, and well, people go into a bunker mindset, and, and now that gets intensified. It gets shot with steroids. And xenophobia goes through the roof. And nothing good ever comes of that. In fact, the ugliest times in human history when xenophobia has been when genocide happens is when people are fearful and they get fearful so they blame somebody they escape uh, go somebody and now all sorts of bloodshed happens i pray that doesn't happen here but already you see this bunker mindset happening kingdom people we however we respond to this do common sense stuff don't go getting your sick you're no good for anybody if you get sick and if you get sick stay at home this isn't the time to show everyone how much you love jesus by going to church when you're coughing on everybody Take common sense stuff, but, but don't give into that fear. Um, wh- wh- whatever happens, we have to have on our radar screen the other, the person outside of our, 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 our inner circle. And, and how much space we have for the other will vary depending on the season, depending on what's going on in our family. There are seasons where maybe the crisis in your family is such that it consumes all your time. You don't have any emotional space for something outside of that. that that's, that's understandable. Don't feel guilty about that if it's a season you're going through. But it can't be your default. And that's the difference. See, in the, in the culture, the default is just that it's me and my own. Look out for number one. It's the me first movement. Me too. We have a me too movement. Well, this was before that. This is the me first movement. Okay, and it started in Genesis 3. Look out for number one, the number one movement. I'm going to look out for me and my own. If that means that you, don't, you and your own don't get your stuff, well, that's too bad because I'm first. The kingdom of people, that, when that gets fused with fear, it creates ugliness. We're seeing some of that now. I encourage you not to give in to fear and go to frequent Chinese restaurants because some people are doing this xenophobia thing where the thing is, oh, it's a Chinese since it came from China. This is like they did with the gays with HIV. You blame someone. You want to find someone to blame, someone to pin it on. Nothing good ever happens from that. Looking to people uh, as, as we're heading into this, but it's a potential kind of difficult storm. Uh, it, it's time for us to learn from the early church. And, and remember that uh, we are called, we're ambassadors of Christ, first and foremost, who are called to imitate Jesus' love towards all people at all times, to sacrifice for the welfare of others. And, and we believe, we know that, that in Christ, this is a long story, not a short story. We live forever, so we don't need to be fearing death. And see, that changes our perspective of everything. Well, the culture goes into the zeno phobia mindset the kingdom moves in an opposite direction where the world is characterized by fear of the other the kingdom as we shared several weeks ago is 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 predicated on love of the other love of that one who is different outside your normal orbit especially love for the one who is disadvantaged the one who is on the losing side of the world system the one who's estranged uh from from the conveniences that uh, advantages that others might have the kingdom is all about love for the other because that's the kind of love god has for us right hospitality that's how the words translated love for the other so while we were yet sinners christ died for us when we were yet enemies christ died for us he opened up space to include us 
and made whatever he, sacrifice he had to make to include us. And then he turns to us and says, go thou and do likewise. And that, this is the gospel right there. Go thou and do love like. As, as, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Uh, this is the call. So folks, uh, as we're going through this time, it applies individually and communally. As we're going through this time, try to have space on your radar screen for the other. You have to first, of course, be concerned for your, your family. And especially if you have children and, and especially elderly adults because that seems to be the ones who are getting hard, hit the hardest here, especially if they have pre-existing, pre-existing conditions. So do what you can to, to, keep, to keep them from having contact. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I encourage this during this time, especially during this time, to be, and we just came out of this series, right, to be listening to God, talking to the Spirit, praying for your neighbors. That's a good thing to be doing all the time, but especially do it now. It's, it's, it's natural just to pray for you and your loved ones and your family and your covenant community. That's great. But include the other. Because however bad this might hit you, hit you, there are others who will be hit harder. Have them on your radar screen, if at all possible. Uh, ask the Spirit how you're to pray for them. Maybe ask the Spirit how you could maybe help them, depending on your own conditions and how your health and the health of your family. But maybe check on them. If you have someone in your neighborhood who's elderly, maybe with pre-existing conditions, you've always known that the, the, the daughter comes over on Fridays and takes care of mom. What if the daughter's sick? Check in on them. Check in on people who maybe ask, is there something you could do? Maybe there's a meal you could bring. Maybe there's an errand you could run, something you could do to serve them. That gets you out of the public. It might put you a little more at risk. But this is what the kingdom is all about. It's about bleeding for the sake of others. And even when you pay a price for it, it works for the sake of the kingdom. Two years ago, we had this pretty bad flu thing here. And there's a person in our congregation who told me about how their neighbor uh, was, has two, a single mom with two kids, but also was taking care of her mother. Uh, her mother got really, really, really ill. To the point we had to go to a, a, a minute clinic to get checked up on some stuff, and then eventually to the urgency room. But, but she couldn't because her two kids were also sick. And she, so... so the neighbor had offered herself to saying, if you need any help, let me know. So she called and said, could you bring my mother to this clinic? She came over to care of the mother and then went to the emergency room and took care of all that. It was a couple hour ordeal. She ended up getting the flu pretty bad. I don't know if it was from taking the mother out or something else, but see, yeah, she got sick. But man, did that impact her neighbor because her neighbor said, you were willing to do that for me? For my mommy, you don't even really know us that well. And that, 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 that opened up a bridge, a relationship that maybe otherwise wouldn't be there. Even if you get sick and pay for it, it works to the advantage of the kingdom. So have the other on our mindsets. Don't give in to this fear, this bunker mindset. No, 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 our, our call. We're always on. We're always ambassadors, right? We're always manifesting the kingdom. We're always representing the kingdom. It also works on a communal level. Oh, let me say this before I forget, that one of the things that we could use, one of the others you could be thinking about are folks who visit here, because we need a lot of cleaning here. They're saying, sanitize everything. And so we're going to be just deluging our children's church with sanitization and everything around here. We need help with that. So if you've got a little time this week, call us up, stop at the help desk and say, hey, I'll spray some things down, because we really need a lot of help in that area. Also, communally, look at, this is what we do as a community. We, we individually want to be Christ-like, but also we want to be a, a giant version of Jesus, right? And, and, and so we pool our resources together uh, to manifest xenophilia, love of the other, especially those who are hurting and those who are, are homeless, those who are disadvantaged. And so we, we, we bleed together for the sake of the other. That's what we do. And, and, and here's the thing, that isn't going to go away. Uh, it's likely, I don't know how this is going to go, but it's likely that we're already beginning to see right here what's going to happen to church attendance. 
as people get more and more fearful, understandably, about going out in public and contracting this thing and all of that. Um, and, when, and so attendance is likely to go down across the board. And when attendance goes down, guess what? Finances go down. And that'd be fine if needs also went down. But they don't. Needs go up. So when everyone's hunkering down and pulling back their resources, the people who really need the resources the most are getting the least amount of resources. This is why whenever disaster hits, folks, it's always the poor that pay the highest price. The wealthy, they get by. Yeah, they suffer some, whatever. But they got safety nets. They got people. They got community. They got insurance. They got a lot of things. Your illegal immigrant neighbor over there doesn't have any safety net whatsoever. What happens if, 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 if she gets ill? Who's looking out for them? See, here's what the early church understand, that we, we just need to lock this in. The darker it gets out there, the more opportunity there is to let the light shine. And what is the disadvantage of the world can be an advantage to the kingdom if we will be the church. If we'll step up. So I want to encourage you. You know, I, I, I'm not going to say, hey, Come to church. Certainly, if you're feeling sick, don't come to church. And you use your own mindset about when to come or what. You know, I, I can't. I'm not going to mess with that. Although I encourage you to participate, whether you're attending here or not. Participate. And whether you're attending here or not, uh, I, I encourage you to continue to support. Because the needs don't go away. The people don't go away. You think that people are going to need food less now than they did before? Uh-uh. It's much more so. If anything, step up. Uh, this is the time. The darker it gets out there, the more opportunity there is for us to let our light shine. If we will... Be confident that we're called to love like Jesus loved and confident that we, that we live forever. Uh, and so we're willing to be brave and willing to love with a courage that is, is, is not common in this world. That's what puts the kingdom on display. And that's, what lets, that's how the early church grew. And that's how, this, that's how our church can grow. That's how the modern church can grow if we will be the church. Amen? Amen. 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 Perfect love casts out fear. We cast out fear in Jesus' name. All right. All right. Uh, uh, now sermon number one. Here's sermon number two. All right. Um, it, 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 we're calling it unraveling truth. Here's the kind of thing uh, that, 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 that brought about this series. Um, I occasionally will see somebody that I say he's got a kingdom mindset, a kingdom heart, gets a Jesus vision of the kingdom, and I see a lot of potential in them, and I, I have... At different times, I've struck up a relationship with people. Younger people, because part of my calling is to be pouring into younger people. I want to I help form this kingdom movement that's rising up in the world. So this was one person. And by the way, when I share a personal story, I will change the details enough so that if you think you have a clue what I'm talking about, you don't. All right? So I, I, I just... So, so there's this person that I had seen such potential in. Uh, very sharp guy, uh, uh, he had come out of a pretty jaded form of Christianity and was passionate about the beauty of God and really getting into all this. And, and, and so we would do book studies together and talk. And I, the one agreement I thought we had was that um, I, I will gladly pour into you if you will just always be agree that you'll process things with me. Whatever's whatever going on in your head, I want to know. And, and give, me, give me a voice in your brain. That's all I ask for. Well, it went good for about two years, and then the relationship kind of, you know, got a little more quiet, and that's ordinary. Life goes on like that. But then I find out from somebody else that this person had lost, given up on their faith, become an atheist. And I was like, what? So I finally get a chance to meet with this person. They kind of wanted to evade me, but finally sit with the person, and it's like, I thought we had, I was kind of hurt, and I don't get hurt very easily. I don't take things personally, but man, I thought we had an agreement, and you didn't let me on the inside. I felt kind of betrayed and hurt by this. More importantly, why did you go down this route? And, and, and please explain it to me. And the person said, I didn't want to talk to you about this because I knew you'd talk me out of it. 
And I said, well, if I could talk you out of it, then shouldn't you be talked out of it? <laughs> I mean, isn't that, presumably I'm using reason to do that. So he goes, well, yeah, probably. But see, if I talk to somebody else, they'll talk me into their view too. And that's the thing. He says, uh, how do you know anything? You look at the evidence and you see it one way. Another person looks at the evidence and they see it another way. And yeah, you're very persuasive. You sit down, you give me all the reasons for believing in Jesus, believing in the gospel, all of that. But there's people smarter than you who look at that same evidence and they come away with the opposite conclusion. So who, how's a guy like me to know? Who knows? Ever heard anything like that before? Who knows? And so the person says, I just decided we can't ever know. We just can't ever know. And, and, and so I've just given up. And then went on about how Christians, see, you think you know. And so you get intolerant and you get labeled. And then you went on that whole thing. Some of you have heard things like that. Who knows? That's the title of this message. Um, it's a question of truth. It's all over the place today. In this, in this pluralistic world where you have all these truth claims, all this ambiguity, this is the truth, this is the truth, look at it this way, look at it this way, look at it that way, how are you supposed to know it's so confusing? It's like you can spend your whole life, quit your job, and just spend your time reading philosophy and history and theology the rest of your life to figure out what's true. No. It's like a cartoon I saw one time, this little kid about four years old, he's got the Upanishads and the Bible and the Book of Mormon and all these books in front of him. And then the parents are commenting like, we just want to make, to make his own decision. Uh, well, it doesn't quite work like that, okay? You, you couldn't exhaust all the lifetime. So it seems like a crapshoot, what you believe. It depends on where you're born and, and, and how you're raised and what your personality is like and how smart the person was who witnessed to you or how dumb they were. And now it's gotten to the point where people are, are just not sure they believe in any kind of truth at all. How can you know there is a truth? Maybe it's just all... Our own perspectives. Now, it's not a new question. You see it in the Gospels. It happens between Jesus and, and, and Pilate when Jesus is on trial. Let's read this section here. It's, it's John 18. And Pilate asks Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, verse 16, uh, or 36, I mean. No wonder I got you screwed up. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would, be, would, be, would fight to prevent my arrest. Now, see, you can always know that something is a version of the kingdom of this world because they'll resort to violence to advance it and protect it. That's just par for the course. You can tell that something's of the kingdom of God because they won't use violence to uh, further their cause or try to protect their cause. Peter tried to do that, and Jesus rebuked him for it. So you can see my kingdom is from a different place. It originates from a different place. That includes not relying on violence to advance your causes and protect yourself. So Pilate says, you are a king then. Oh, I got you. You said you're king. Because see, that would be illegal. And it would justify Pilate killing him because Herod's king, not anyone else. So Jesus answered, look, you say that I'm a king. You're the one who's saying that. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? So here Jesus, it's, he says, I, 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 I came into this world to testify to the truth. I'm bearing witness to the truth. That he goes so far as to say at one point, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. No one goes to the Father except through me. Okay, so he claims to be the truth. Not only that, but he talks about his disciples being in the truth, abiding in the truth, living in the truth, walking by the spirit of truth. Uh, and everyone who belongs to the truth whose heart is open to the truth, he says, is listening to me. Now, Pilate clearly isn't in that category because Pilate doesn't recognize him as testifying to the truth. Pilate says, well, what is truth? And here we're seeing sort of the cynicism of a, of a worn-out politician. You hear all these claims. You see all these different people bickering about this, that, or the other thing, who's innocent, who's guilty, and you finally just throw your hands up in the air. 
truth, what's truth got to do with anything here? You're at my mercy, Jesus. I'll tell you what truth is. Truth is whatever I decide it's going to be. You got some people who say you're innocent. You got some people who say you're guilty. Who's to know? Well, you know what? I'll decide. If, you, if I say you're innocent, you're innocent. If I say you're guilty, you're guilty. As it is, he lets the people decide. But see, it's a cynical view of truth. There's really nothing there. It's, truth is relative to your personal or cultural or moral perspective. Uh, it's a view that comes out to be called relativism. Everything's relative. It's relative to your angle, your perspective. There's no objective truth. It's all relative. So to find out a little bit more about relativism, since this whole series is kind of on relativism, we're going to listen to a little tape here, which is all the smarter because it's done with a British accent, and we Americans always think British accents sound smart. So let's listen to it. Because of copyright restrictions, we trim some content from this sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. Uh, relativism's got some academic or some intellectual problems to it. One of them being that if, uh, actually no one really believes it. Everyone, people say they believe it, but no one actually believes it. Because otherwise you'd have to say that, that, that Nazi Germany had as much a right to claim moral truth as, as 21st century America. Uh, you'd have to be willing to say there's no progress in history. Uh, we haven't evolved at all since the days when they used to sacrifice children to the god Moloch or whatever to get good harvest and whatever. Yeah, look back at all the barbaric things that were done. That was just as valid as, as, as what we would call today. It also makes you wonder, what will they 500 years from now be looking back on and saying, oh, those barbaric people, they used to think that was okay to do that. It makes you wonder about that. But, but okay, so, so, so that's a... We'll be saying a lot more about that. The philosophical questions about how do you know and how do you come up with faith and what is faith in sea of ambiguity here. We'll talk much more about that in, in the series to come. For this morning, there's just two things I want to do. Um, and and uh, before I do that, I want to say this. That this is, in case you don't know, I think a lot of you are in touch with this, how, how deep a problem this is right now. But it is everywhere. It is saturating us. Um, Older people, if you're 40 and over, you might not know this as much as the younger people do, but, but for the younger folks, the idea of making any kind of absolute truth claim, it just feels weird to them. Uh, I, I haven't yet met anyone who says, here's why I'm not a Christian. Well, I, I can't say that. Uh, but hardly anyone argues, here's the, argue, here's the reason why I'm not a Christian. This argument proves Christianity wrong. They don't argue that way. It's rather, there's something off with it. Um, so... I, I'm not outing anybody because these are people who have already come out with their unbelief. But, but this is symptomatic. Bart Campolo. He's the son of one of the most famous evangelists of the 20th century, Tony Campolo. And, and yet in 2011, he declares himself to be a secular humanist and atheist and now runs clinics on how to help uh, atheists be good atheists. Um, he, uh, you will have uh, Derek Webb, a great musician. He actually was inspired in some of his songs. He, he took some of my writings and, and put it to music, and he would send me them and talk about it. And, and I had such hope for him. It's, it was going great. And I, he's going to come back sooner or later. I've got to believe it. But he announced that he's, in, he's post-Christian now. It's just so, and I don't say it with the judgments of it. It's just my heart breaks. Uh, you've got, you've got uh, who else? Matt's, Matt, uh, or Marty Sampson, who's a, a, one of the top songwriters for Hillsong announced last year that he's no longer a Christian. Josh Harris, who wrote the book Kiss Dating Goodbye, he declared himself no longer a Christian. You have the Gungers, who declared themselves post-Christian. But now they're kind of coming back, sort of in a kind of, I don't know what they think about anything. Uh, but but it, it goes on. This is huge. And it's all, this kind of, it just feels weird. It, it's, it, it, Christianity just feels irrelevant. It doesn't feel like it fits the world. So there's, there's two things I want to say. Uh, there's room for a philosophical argument here, but I want to be careful not to come across as sort of like, 
we're the people who know, and we'll point out that you've, even a claim, all truth is relative, is an absolute truth claim. You're contradicting yourself. It still feels there's a place for that, but not, not the first word. Two things are the first word. Number one, the kind of Christianity that these folks usually are rejecting is the kind of Christianity that I would reject. Most, not all, but many of these people who are walking away from the faith. Um, and the reason why they're feeling such a pressure uh, right now with this, all these truth claims, they're feeling such a pressure on this, is that the, the, the kind of Christianity that they assume is the only Christianity is a very narrow kind of Christianity. It's the kind of Christianity that says not only that Jesus Christ is Lord, we all would agree on that, but that if you don't believe what we believe, then you're going to hell. That's the basic mindset. Uh, you've got to be part of our tribe. We're the only saved tribe. Um, and see, a lot of folks hear that. Really? You, you have all the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's wild, because we don't even believe in truth anymore. Uh, you increasingly sound like aliens. And, and when people make these claims, especially when you say, oh, by the way, God is absolutely loving. God is perfect love. But if you don't agree with us on these 17 points, you're going to hell. <laughs> Hallelujah. Of course, it, you know, they make exceptions for babies and, and, and things like that, but, but, but the, the, which is kind of baseless. That's just sort of the sentimentality going on there. But basically, it's just, this, you agree with us, you join our tribe, you think the way we think and behave the way we, we behave, or you're going to hell. Uh, and, and people listen to that and they go, what? That seems, not, that seems insane. Once upon a time, that could be plausible when you live most of your life and hardly rub shoulders with people who disagreed with you ever. But when you're living in a world where you've got this wonderful Jew to your right and the wonderful Hindu to your left and, 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 and the, the, the Sikh couple over there and the atheist couple over there and this diversity, this pluralistic world, and you see these wonderful people who may, whose faith maybe looks yours, makes yours look put to shame, and you think, they're supposed to go to hell while I go to heaven? And this is an all-loving God? What kind of parent would leverage eternity? And most of the people, this narrow kind of Christianity, most of the folks there believe that hell is eternal. Um, and they ask the question, what kind of loving God would base your salvation on the beliefs in your head when the beliefs in your head are at least largely influenced by, if not determined by, where you're born and who, who raised you, how you're raised, who witnessed to you, were they smart, were they dumb, did they have good breath or bad breath, were they attractive, all those things kind of factor into that. What your personality is like, all those things. And what kind of loving parent would leverage the welfare of their children, let alone the eternal welfare of their children, on things that are totally out of their control? At that point, you might as well be a Calvinist and believe it's all predestined. But please don't. But so you can see how, and now here's the thing. If I had to believe that, I'd believe that. But people assume that that's what all Christians have always believed. But I'm here to tell you. That narrow kind of Christianity represents one strand of the Christian tradition. It's the strand that happened to become dominant with the fundamentalist movement in America and then the later evangelical movement. It's a narrow strand, that negative way of looking at the world. But it isn't the only strand in church history. It's not even the dominant strand in early church history. This isn't some kind of liberal thing I'm thinking of here. You look at the early church fathers like Justin Martyr or Origen or Clement of Alexandra. These people didn't think that all non-Christians were going to hell. In fact, they had a pretty optimistic view of the world because they knew that God was a big God and what Jesus did on the cross applied to everybody. And, and, and so the idea of, for example, they talk about Socrates. Would, would God send Socrates to hell? That, that appalled them. There were some people at the time who thought Socrates was going to hell because he didn't believe in Jesus. But these guys said, no, wait a minute. Yes, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Yes, Jesus said, no one goes to the Father except through me. 
But the Jesus who said that was also the word of life who enlightens everybody who comes into the world, right? John 1, 9. And so the word of life is operating everywhere. Paul tells us that, 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 that in Acts 17, that God is working through every culture to get people to grope for him, to hunger for him, and possibly find him, though he's not far from any of us, because in him we live and move and have our being. And I love the fact that Paul there quotes a Stoic philosopher. Because one of the things that kind of characterizes the narrow Christianity that everyone's rejecting today is that they think that they're the group that has all the answers. We have the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And so, listen, you ask the questions, we'll give the answers, but we're never the people that need to ask the questions. So it's not a dialogical relationship with others, it's more of a monologue thing. We are the answer people, the solving people, the know-it-all people, and no wonder people then don't like that. Uh, no, see, the Bible has a much more... Read 2 Corinthians 5, where, where Paul's like... If one died for all, then all have died. So if you're in Christ, look, everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. That's why the, he says that, that as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. As all were lost in Adam, so all are saved in Christ. He, he, I don't think he's saying that everyone's guaranteed to be saved because everyone's got their free will. You can reject that if you want. But he's talking about God's attitude. God's got this bear hug. All right, God's claiming everybody. And see... It, if you have that mindset, you look at the world with very different eyes than if you think everyone's going to hell unless they agree with you. It was, and I'm sorry, I beat him up a lot. I can't help it, but it, it, this goes back, like most negative things in the church, it goes back to St. Augustine, who strapped Christians with this very dark view of God, a God who just predestines certain people to go to heaven and everyone else is going to hell. So trained people to look at the world as this, uh, humanity as this massive perdition, and everyone's going to hell unless they agree with you, and that's the strand that we're seeing today. Folks, just know that that's not the only strand. There's a wideness in God's mercy. The God that, that we're to... What does it say about God that God would be stingy with his grace? I'm only going to give it to these special people. No, look at the cross. This is a God who's outrageous. He, Jesus says he loves like the rain falls. He loves like the sun shines. He loves indiscriminately. He's this all-inclusive God, this all-encompassing God. Hallelujah. And where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. God is not stingy. He's outrageously generous with his grace. Yes, the way is narrow. You said that. Here's the thing. The way is narrow and straight. And few there be that find it. At any given time, the way is narrow. That's the thing about truth. It's always singular. It's always narrow. What's my name? There's one right answer. There's an infinity of wrong answers. What's 2 plus 2 equals 4? One right answer. Infinity of wrong answers. How fast does light travel? How many stars are there? How many blades of grass are there? How many, how many grades of sand? There is an answer to those question, questions, but there's only one right answer. Uh, there's an infinity of wrong ones. So, of course, is, who is Jesus? There's one right answer. There's an infinity of wrong ones. But see, the balance of that is to know that, yeah, the truth is singular, but God is a God who's always at work in people's lives and people's hearts to get people to, 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 to hunger for him and find him insofar as it's possible in that given culture. And God doesn't base someone's eternal welfare on the, on the content of their brain. God, the Bible tells us, it look, God looks at the heart. We look on the outside. We think we can judge by the cover. You can't judge anything by the cover. God looks at the heart. And that's why Paul says, like the Gentiles who don't have the law, God judges them based on their conscience, on the light that they do have, and how they respond. But they had an outrageously generous God in the early church. And, uh, and, and so it wasn't this narrow kind of thing. Just know that that's not the only kind of Christianity that's out there. So the first thing I want to say is, consider the broad, a broad view of, 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 of the faith the kind that was reflected in the early church. The second thing I want to say is this. We have to ask the question, why is there such fog right now about truth, 
Oh, how do you know what's true? Why, all these, and, and we can give a lot of reasons for this. You know, the pluralistic world, you know, brings it about and all this kind of stuff. We can say a lot of things about it. A lot of Christians would say that the reason why there's such a fog about truth right now, especially spiritual truth, is because the secularists, the secular humanists, have driven truth out of the public square. We've taken God out of our, 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 our schools, uh, the Ten Commandments out of our official buildings, and prayer out of our schools. So the evil people have barred uh, the, the truth of Christianity from the public sphere. I'm really glad I didn't get a single amen on that. <laughs> because, see, here, folks, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, and this goes to why Jesus says, I, I testify to the truth. And my people belong to the truth, and they embody the truth. They live the truth out. Because, see, by God's design, people are supposed to come to know the truth by seeing it lived out. Here's what happened. Uh, it's not a happy story. But beginning in the 13th century, uh, it starts with the uh, Hundred Years' War. And we have Christians uh, fighting Christians. Christians in one state fighting Christians from another state. Uh, and though it was driven by politics and money, they were also did it in the name of God for truth and righteousness. That goes on for about 300 years. It culminates with the 30, the 30 Years' War, which left Germany, about 20% of the population decimated. Vicious, crazy Christian-on-Christian Christian violence. Christians killing each other, massacring each other. It, 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 was, it was insane. It got to the point where finally in the 17th century, the secular feudal lords... The heads of all these states got together and said, you guys, this is not benefiting all of us. It's costing us a whole lot of money. What if we call a truce? And so they signed what's called the Peace of Westphalia in 1667, which basically said, no one's allowed to kill anyone anymore for religious reason. reasons. Game over. You're not allowed to kill for religious reasons. You can kill for other reasons, but not religious reasons. And that's when toleration becomes the sort of the chief virtue in Western culture. We're going to get along. And so now you create a secular state. You create a secular space where, uh, where that is religion-free, a religion-free zone. And they had to do it. It wasn't the evil people trying to push God away. They had to do it because Christians were killing each other. So let's, let, let's, take, let's create a, 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 a sphere here where we can talk about objective facts like science and objective facts about the world. But when it comes to religion and theology, well, that's subjective. Keep it to yourself. Keep it private. So there's no role for it here in, 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 the, in the public sector. Um, and then from that comes this idea that not only are we supposed to keep truth private, but truth is just subjective. And there is no objective truth to a religious truth claim. It's all just feeling. It's like, do you like popcorn? Do you like chocolate? Do you believe in Jesus or Buddha? And so it's just a personal preference thing. And now you can understand why people are going, what is truth? 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 But it wasn't the evil people driving God out of the marketplace that did it. It was the Christians' failure to live up, to even approximate what is the truth. If the church had been living in love as Christ loved us and gave a life for us, if the church had been turning the other cheek rather than chopping off heads, if the church had been laying down their lives for enemies rather than killing their enemies, we wouldn't be having the, the kind of what is true stuff that we're having today. At least I don't think we'd be having that. Because by God's own design, people are supposed to come to know the truth by seeing it. Jesus says, here's how they'll know that I'm real, by your love, John 13, 35. John 17, he says, uh, Father, I pray that they all may be one, even as we are one, because then the world will know that you have sent me. It's when they see it that they'll come to know it. They've got to see it. He says this in, in, in 1 John 4, uh, verse 12. He says, no one's seen God. You can't see God. God's essential nature is invisible. But 
He says, uh, if we love one another, God lives in us. And the love is perfected in us. Now, the word perfected there, in Greek, it's telao. And it doesn't mean to improve necessarily. It usually means to fulfill or to complete. So what John is saying here is that no one can see God. These pagans out there, they have no clue what God is. But they can sort of see God in us. Because God's love is fulfilled in us. God's love is completed in us. If we are living in love, they see what God is like by looking at us. God's love achieves its purpose when it is advertised through us towards others. And by God's own design, that's how people are supposed to come to know the truth. But if they don't see the truth, they're not, by God's own design, God wouldn't expect them to know the truth. So the fault doesn't fall on the unbelievers. The fault falls on the believers who are supposed to be living the truth, abiding in the truth, modeling the truth, that the world may know that Jesus Christ is for real. I'd go so far to say, and this is, I, I can't prove this, but I think it's just, a, it reflects the kingdom humility to have this attitude that all of the major problems in Western culture are ultimately the results of the church failing to be the church. Just failing to be the body of Christ that God calls us to be. And so the, the first response to this relativism, I, I think, shouldn't be a haughty sort of, oh, well, that's a logically incongruent position. Although it's true. I think relativism, although I also want to say there's a whole lot we've got to learn from relativism because the church has been arrogant on making its truth claims. So there's a lot of humility we've got to learn from, from relativism. But as a philosophical worldview, it's incoherent. But you know what? I don't get to say that the first thing because I'm part of an institution, at least, that is identified with following Jesus, and it is to blame for having forced this ambiguity in the first place. So the first response should be one of humble, I'm the greatest of sinners. We're the greatest of sinners. We already knew that. Uh, and, 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 and so let's absorb whatever blame we can bl- absorb on that instead of pointing fingers. Uh, and then, and then, and then um, uh, having done that, we, we respond by simply living it. The best response... In, 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 here, here's the full circle here. We're right now... Surrounded with this fog of, of, of this, uh, this, this uh, what are they calling it, coronavirus. And by the way, it doesn't mean that Corona beer is going to give you a virus. <laughs> there are people who think that. <laughs> it's xenophobia uh, talking. Do not let fear drive you away from beer. <laughs> if you call me out of context of that, I, I, I'm in trouble. Okay. The coronavirus didn't come from Corona beer, I don't think. But, but here, here's the full circle. So there's all the... We don't know where this is going to lead. It could be very bad. What's going to happen to our retirement funds? <laughs> They're already gone. Uh, it, 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 it could get really bad. But that's all right. Perfect love casts out fear. Do not give in to the fear. Do not go into bunker mindset. Do not uh, accept xenophobia. No, no, no. Commit to living in xenophilia. Get your life from Christ. Fear nothing. Let perfect love drive out all fear. Praise God. You're going to live forever. And it gets better and better. So do what you got to do. Common sense stuff. Don't go out of your way to get sick. You're no good for anybody if you're sick. But if you do get sick, don't feel like you're supposed to come to church to show how much you love Jesus. Stay home. All right? Most importantly, we've, this is, the darker it gets, the more there's an opportunity for us to shine if we will live it. So as we go into this time, it could get dark. It could, this could go six weeks. It could go six months. I don't know what's going to do with the economy. I, I don't know. On the other hand, it could be a little breeze, so we'll see. But um, if, if it does go like that, stay kingdom. The culture can go up and down. Your health can go up and down. But see, the, the kingdom is the same. Be kingdom in season, out of season. And, and, and the darker it gets, the more you can let your light shine. Be asking the Spirit, how are you to be blessing your neighbors, blessing your church, blessing those around you? When everyone else is hunkering down and bunkering in, it's our time to fearlessly imitate Jesus in a selfless love towards others. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise God.
Let's do it. Oh, would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, uh, pick some up here and let these people pray with you. We're going to keep our doors open here. We're going to keep on with business as usual. Uh, you follow your own discretion as to how you want to participate and all that stuff. But just remember the stuff I said earlier on. The needs just keep on going up in a time like this. So, so, so live in Christ's uh, outrageous, generous love. As we leave here, can we do it as a people that are committed to keeping the other, the Zeno on our radar screen, caring about them? And uh, in a culture that's getting increasingly xenophobic, can we commit to being Zeno, uh, xenophilia, loving the other, sacrificing for the other, fearlessly, courageously serving? In Jesus' name. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. God bless you guys. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that we're in the last week of our sustain campaign. If you're able to help us reach our goal, we'd really appreciate it. Just go to whchurch.org sustain. God bless you guys. Have a blessed week.